In the early morning hours of August 29, 1996, police and firefighters responded to reports of a house fire on West Junaluska Drive in South Richmond, Virginia. Inside the one-story brick home were the deceased bodies of a 34-year-old woman and her 7-year-old daughter, both stabbed to death. This is the story of Cynthia and Heather Johnson. Welcome to Crime Soup Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Kanapis. And I'm Kaylee. And today we'll be discussing the horrific murders of Cynthia and Heather Johnson in Richmond, Virginia in 1996. Just a warning, this episode does contain elements of violence and child sexual abuse, so please proceed listening with caution or skip to another episode if you need to. In the early morning hours of Thursday, August 29th, 1996, Firefighters were dispatched to 6535 West Junaluska Drive in the West Lake Hills neighborhood of South Richmond, Virginia, which is a quiet subdivision mostly made up of brick ranch-style houses and split levels. When they arrive, it isn't apparent from the outside that the house is on fire, but once they get inside, firefighters are faced with heavy smoke and find two deceased bodies. In the family room, they find the homeowner, 34-year-old Cynthia Johnson, deceased. And in the front bedroom, they find 7-year-old Heather, also deceased. Both bodies had been set on fire post-mortem. The family's two dogs, a poodle and a Pomeranian, and a cat are all found deceased inside the home as well. Richmond Fire Captain Don Horton determines that there were at least seven different fires set in the house, and unfortunately, these fires effectively destroyed a lot of potential evidence. Cynthia and Heather's bodies were sent off for autopsies, and the state medical examiner's office determined that Cynthia Johnson died of a knife wound. More specifically, her throat had been slashed, and she had a small puncture wound on her neck. Her seven-year-old daughter, Heather, had been repeatedly stabbed in the chest and had wounds to her vagina. Despite rumors circulating in the news at the time, neither of the victims had been bound or gagged. Hold on one more time. Can you tell me um, where Cynthia had been stabbed? So her neck had been slashed, and then they said there was a small puncture wound in her neck, but there's no indication of what caused it. That's weird that her neck was slashed and then her seven-year-old daughter's body was just absolutely repeatedly stabbed. That's a red flag. Well, the whole thing is a red flag. (laughs) This is more than a red flag. (laughs) This is a whole parade of a marching band all holding red flags. Red flag in the investigation is what I mean. Okay. Not not the situation in general. <laughs> You're like, because hmm, this seems a little off. <laughs> something's fishy here. They're like, ma'am, please get out. We get don't. Out. <laughs> How did you get in here? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's weird. 
that immediately makes me think some type of sexual abuse is going on. So naturally, investigators treated the case as a double homicide, and they went to work questioning everyone closest to the Johnson family. What they found was that Cynthia worked a full-time job and was raising her daughter as a single mother after getting divorced six years earlier. The split from her ex-husband Keith Johnson was by all accounts amicable, and Keith continually played a role in the family, visiting and taking care of their daughter as best he could. She was incredibly close with her father Willie and her brother Dell, and was actually considering moving closer to her brother so that their kids could attend school together. It was her brother who actually baptized her into the Mormon faith only six months earlier, although they'd both been raised Roman Catholic. For the most part, Cynthia lived a quiet and unassuming lifestyle, mostly focusing on her job and raising her daughter. She had only moved into her house on Junaluska Drive in the last year, inheriting it from her parents after her mother died of cancer in 1995. So she inherited the house after her mother died, but her brother didn't get anything? I don't even know if inherited is the right word. It's possible that she bought it from them, but... Uh, okay. She essentially, yeah, she moves into the house. I believe it's the house that she grew up in as a child. Okay. I love that you're like, so her brother just got shafted. I'm suspicious of everybody right now. So I'm trying to look for motive. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, shut up. (laughs) Cynthia's family weren't aware of any strangers or neighbors that may have had a grudge against her. And they only knew about one man she had been only passively dating from her LDS church. However, there was more to Cynthia's past than met the eye. Less than two months after the fatal attack on Cynthia and Heather, police announced a viable suspect in their case. Police were looking into one of Cynthia's ex-boyfriends, a man named Glenn H. Barker. So from the outside, Glenn Barker seemed like a catch, He was six feet, five inches tall, athletic, personable, never showing any signs of his deeply troubling history. Glenn Barker was 35 years old and had previously lived with Cynthia and Heather for about 18 months. But the couple allegedly broke up because seven-year-old Heather didn't like him. I'm going to stop right there. What instantly comes to your mind when you find out that a couple breaks up because the child doesn't like the boyfriend. Fucking Glenn, dude. Um, he was sexually abusing her. He was... That's my immediate reaction, is if your kid doesn't like the man you're dating and doesn't give, like, any specifics, doesn't want to get into it, it's because something bad is happening. That's where my mind immediately goes, is that he's a creep, right? Yeah. Especially because Heather's only seven. Especially because she's that young. Because according to accounts from everyone else in his life, he's a great guy. So personable. Everyone loves him. So why would a seven-year-old girl dislike him so much to the point that it was causing issues in his in her mother's relationship with him? That's a red flag. Yeah. And good on Cynthia for breaking up with him. Exactly. We had something similar happen in episode one with Debbie Grabber, right? Mm-hmm. With Lawrence. Yeah, with fucking Lawrence. I trust teenage girls and little girls to tell me when a man is untrustworthy. 1000%. And it's because creepy men often feel most comfortable exposing their most creepiness, their most vile, disgusting parts of themselves 
to little girls and teenage girls because they know the power imbalance is going to protect them. They don't think anybody will listen to these little girls. They don't think anything will come of it. And so oftentimes they don't let anybody else see those parts of themselves, but to little girls and teenage girls, they're going to be disgusting and they think they can get away with it. Because sometimes they can, because they do. I mean, you and I both have been at one time little girls and yep. I mean, it was easy to manipulate us. I won't speak for you, but like. No, it, it totally was easy to manipulate me. Yeah. Especially the way that little girls are raised and, and a lot of other things having to do with like the way we were socialized. But Okay, but I want to tell you where this information came from. So obviously Cynthia and Heather are deceased and Glenn Barker is not willingly giving up this information that the seven-year-old girl hates him. Yeah. So this information is coming to police from... Another man that actually dated Cynthia right after she broke up with Glenn. So after she broke up with Glenn, she dated a guy named Gary Wayne McAllister. And when police find him, because obviously they're looking through her past and they find out that she dated Gary. When police question Gary, he tells them this information about Glenn Barker. According to Gary, he called Cynthia only hours before her death, about 10.25 p.m. on August 28th. And he even then drove past her house about 11 p.m. because their conversation worried him about her well-being. While driving past her house, he noticed that her car was in the driveway and the lights in the house were all off. What, I guess you might just get to it, but I want to ask anyway, just in case. What do you mean concerned for her well-being? Like... Like, he thought she was going to hurt herself, or he thought that somebody else might want to hurt her? It's very vague in all of the newspaper clippings that I read. Essentially, he just said that she sounded anxious. Hmm. And I actually don't even know if they're still dating at this point. He's described as being an ex-boyfriend, so I don't know if they just maintained their friendship and he was checking up on her. Yeah, because he called her, right? Yeah, I don't think that they're boyfriend and girlfriend. Hmm, Okay. So that's interesting. I, well, I can imagine, like, she dated Gary after... No, she dated... Uh, what's this guy's name? She dated Gary after Glenn. Glenn. That's right. Gary and Glenn. She dated Gary right after she dated Glenn. And maybe after being with Gary for a little while, she was like, maybe I need to take some time. And it has nothing to do with you, Gary. But I can imagine a situation where they would still remain friends and maybe want to date in the future. Oh, okay, but she yeah. was just trying to, like create some separation between her and men for her daughter's sake or for her own sake or whatever. And maybe he would, he's just a protective type person where after she dated Glenn, he just kind of worried about her because it sounds like their relationship was not the best. Mm -hmm. But so Gary drives past her house that night about 11 o'clock, her car's in the driveway, all the lights are off. So he just keeps driving. But as he's driving past her house, he notices a Ford Ranger pickup truck parked near the neighbor's house that he later confirms matches the kind that Glenn Barker owned. A neighbor also reported seeing this same pickup truck, complete with a Washington Redskins bumper sticker that Glenn's truck was known to have. So this piece of evidence right here from these two different eyewitnesses is probably the biggest piece of evidence that this case has, that Glenn may have potentially been near Cynthia and Heather's residence that night. But nobody actually sees him. And also, remember I told you he's six foot five? He would absolutely stick out. If he was out and about, yeah. Yeah. 
feel like it'd be hard for him to go under the radar when he's that massive. When police questioned Glenn Barker about his involvement with Cynthia Johnson, he claims that he was not involved in their deaths, that he hadn't had any contact with her for two weeks before the fire, but then he kind of backtracks and say, says that he did speak with her on the phone the day that she died. When investigators showed him a picture of Cynthia and Heather's burnt bodies from the crime scene, he apparently showed no emotion. That is strange. I can't imagine being shown the bodies of somebody that I cared about, even if I wasn't dating them at the moment, and having no reaction to that. Yeah. So Glenn's alibi for the night of the murders was that he stopped by the post office about 9 o'clock that night, and then he says he stayed home the rest of the night. He stopped by the post office after it was already closed. Okay, that, thank you. As soon as I heard that, I was like, who goes to the post office at 9 o'clock at night? Sir, they close at 5 p.m. sharp. That is a government building. And it's the most annoying thing ever. I wish they were open till 9 because that's where I know. Go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's not... That's the worst kind of alibi. Like, even if he was just dropping something off, like in, what year was this? So this was 1996. Okay, then they had those drop boxes, I'm sure. But still. Yeah, th that might be what he meant, is that he just was dropping off something, yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of a bad alibi. But he's innocent until proven guilty, so. On October 2nd, Glenn Barker was given a lie detector test, which determined that he was being deceptive when asked two different questions. Had he visited the Johnson residence the night of the murders? And the second one, had he raped his ex-girlfriend, Cynthia? Investigators focused on Glenn Barker not only because of his personal history with the victims, which makes sense, but also because he had a very disturbing criminal history, specifically violent crimes against young women and girls. Oh, no. Here we go, right? Here we fucking go. Because up until this point, you're like, okay, maybe I can give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe Gary's just throwing him under the bus. Yeah, because that, that was my first thought is, Gary is there at the same time. That's very <laughs> weird. And he's like, oh, it's this, her ex-boyfriend. Yeah. I had, that th I had that thought too. I'm like, how many men are circling her block every night? Right? No less on the night of the murders, right? Like, it's On a wild. Wednesday night. Like, what? Yeah, I... What kind of crazy do you have to be to, like, drive by somebody's house? You're not even dating? Like, that must have been a really crazy phone call. For for me to be like, I need to go check on them and and end up just driving by their house, that, that phone call would have to spook me, like, a lot. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the history of Glenn Barker. Glenn Barker had dreams of playing college football after he graduated high school in 1978. But they were cut short when his 15-year-old girlfriend got pregnant during his senior year. His 15-year-old girlfriend. Well, and he was probably 17. The age gap isn't what bothers me, but there's, there's more to be concerned about in this story than the age gap with him and his girlfriend. <laughs> well, yes. But I, I always want to take a second to tell high school girls that it's not a flex when senior boys want to date you when you're a freshman or a sophomore. It's not. Nobody should flex dating a senior high school boy. No! For so many reasons. Anyway, so his girlfriend gets pregnant. Instead of pursuing sports, which it, it sucks for him from his perspective because he actually got a scholarship to do sports and he kind of had to abandon it because now he's got 
this baby on the way, right? Damn, sucks for him. He had to give up his sports dreams because he didn't wrap it the fuck up. I feel so bad for Gwen. <laughs> I'm trying to tell this story, Katie. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> okay. We should get, uh, we should find a condom company that will sponsor us. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. We're like, he should have used a Durex. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag ad. Um, okay, so instead of pursuing sports, Glenn got a factory job to support his wife and newborn son, and they later added a baby girl to the family in 1981. That was like two years later? Four years later? Yeah, so his newborn son was born in 79, and then they had a baby girl in 81. However, this marriage doesn't last, probably because Glenn was being investigated for the kidnapping and assault of an 18-year-old woman whom he allegedly abducted at knife point and tied to a bed. Oh, my God. Luckily, the woman was able to undo her restraints and escaped out a window, but she refused to testify in court, and so Glenn was never convicted. Oh, sad. Yeah. But he was ordered, I don't know how this works, but they did order him to undergo psychiatric evaluation and treatment. So he was supposed to go and see a psychiatrist. And while this is happening, his wife leaves him. Good for her. This part, though, drives me insane. So Glenn sees a therapist, but only three times. Well, that's not enough. He sees a therapist on three occasions, but he terminates his treatment. How he's able to do that, I don't know. But apparently you can just be like, ah, I'm sick of this. This shit sucks. I'm out of here. He goes three times and he terminates his treatment after his therapist suggested that his impulsive behavior might have been prompted by, and I quote, long-standing anger at women. And so he was like, fuck you, I'm out. Yes, it's exactly <laughs> what happened. Glenn was, it's, all the reports are like, Glenn was so irritated and upset by this accusation that he left. And I'm like, that means it's probably fucking true. He's like, oh I God. hate women, but how fucking dare you say that to me to my face? How dare you say it out loud? <laughs> that was a secret between me and the women that I abuse. <laughs> Dude, I didn't fucking need a psychiatrist to tell me that he has a longstanding hatred of women. Uh, insane that we have to diagnose it. But yeah. like, we can't just be like, Obviously, based on the evidence that you don't even need a psychiatric evaluation, we could just tell by the way that you treat the women in your life and everyone around you that you hate them. Listen to this. So Glenn just apparently, I don't know why he can do this, but he could just find a different professional. So he dumps that therapist (laughs) and he finds a new professional. He finds a psychiatrist who is willing to sign off on his court order saying that he was no longer a threat to the public, which apparently you could just do. Why are therapists doing this? Is there like know. money in it to get paid? How hard would it be to just find another dude that also hates women and be like, nah, bro, you're good. We all hate women. I also abduct and rape women on the side when I need something to take the edge off. You're totally cool, bro. Pretty sure that's what happened. I I don't doubt it. Okay, <laughs> Kaylee, it gets so much worse, though. Listen to this. So he gets signed off, right? So his whole court stuff is all done. He's just a free guy. Just over a year later, a 12-year-old girl in Charlottesville goes missing. 
So a 12-year-old girl named Katie Worski went missing in July 1982 from Charlottesville, Virginia, as she was having a sleepover at her friend Tammy Gates's house. And it just so happens that this friend, Tammy Gates, her mom had dated Glenn Barker. When police questioned Glenn Barker about Katie's disappearance, he admitted that he had been with her and Tammy on the night of their sleepover and had even given them both beer. But he claims he left a little after midnight. But according to Tammy, Glenn had given them a lot more alcohol than he told police and that when she awoke at 5.30 in the morning, her friend was just gone. And currently, Katie Worski has never been found. Oh my god. And they did nothing to Glenn? So this is the only thing he's been convicted for. So despite never finding Katie Worski's body, police were able to find significant evidence found at his apartment, and he was convicted for her murder. This is like the super summarized version that I'm giving you, because this could be like its own whole episode. But they did find significant evidence. They found a ton of blood. They found a pair of her underwear at his apartment. And so he ended up getting convicted. He was sentenced to 18 years, but he only ended up serving nine before he was released in 1992. Oh my god. Oh my fucking god. Oh, there are people who serve marijuana sentences for longer than that. Nine years? Yeah. Uh, Even 18 years? What? He took the life of a 12-year-old girl. Yeah, it was technically a second-degree murder charge because they couldn't prove... I mean, they never found her body, so they were lacking a lot of that evidence, but... He was only going to serve 18 years, and then he ended up only serving nine. Yeah, poor little Katie Worski. She was 12. And you want to hear something really sad? So the pair of little girls' underwear that they found at his apartment in one of his drawers... It was identified as being hers, but also, so she had diabetes and she had to take insulin shots. And you can see in her little pair of underwears, there's a tiny little blood drop in her underwear where she would inject the insulin into her bum. And so that's also how they knew that it was hers because it had that mark in it. What was that dad's name who uh, who killed the guy that raped his son? Oh, I can't remember, but I know who you're talking about. Yeah, I want to pull a him right now. <laughs> and, and just put on a trucker hat, grow a mustache, and pull out a, a and revolver. blast his brains out. <laughs> yeah. And her poor parents, too. I know. So he ends up getting convicted for this, which, thank God he got any time, because I don't know where he put her body, but she's never been found, right? And also, once he's released in 1992... He doesn't stay in Charlottesville, probably because everyone knows him there after what happened to Katie. So this is when he moves to Richmond, which is where Heather and Cynthia live. Something else, just as a side note, that I found interesting about this case. Do you know about uh, the FBI profiler Robert Ressler? That sounds very familiar. He's like one of the original FBI profilers from the 70s and 80s. Mm Mm-hmm. He had something to say about Glenn Barker. Apparently, Robert Ressler declared after Barker's release from prison that Barker would, and I quote, very likely kill again. Everybody who took part in releasing Glenn Barker from prison has blood on their hands. Yeah. 
So he's released in 1992 for Katie Worski's murder. Now, fast forward a few years, and this same man, Glenn Barker, who's now 35 years old, has begun dating a different single mother, also with a young daughter. And this family also faces tragedy. God. I I have to get one more thing out of my system before we continue on to the next horrific thing. Okay. If you rob a bank, your mandatory minimum sentence is 15 years in prison. Because banks are federally protected, right? Mandatory 15-year minimum sentence. The government's money is more protected than your children under the law, which makes me fucking psychotic. That money is federally protected, but little girls aren't? Little kids aren't, yes. And you would not believe. You you would believe, but... (laughs) I would. The amount of time that child molesters serve in prison is like mostly zero it blows people's minds if you sexually abuse molest little kids you probably will not serve any prison time yeah anyways sorry i just okay anyways i'm ready to be more angry and you will be so investigators were never able to definitively prove with any physical evidence that Glenn Barker killed Cynthia and Heather Johnson, so he remained free the rest of his life. In fact, less than two years after the murders, Glenn began volunteering as a youth basketball coach in South Brunswick, New Jersey, eventually getting hired part-time because the parents and kids loved him so much. I'm about to scream. I'm literally about to scream. Oh, Oh my god, I'm so angry! Okay, uh, when did Megan's Law come into effect? Not until like the early 2000s, right? I think so. Oh my god. So they do eventually find out about his criminal history. So he gets hired on as this youth basketball coach, right? It's because there wasn't really sharing between states. So now he's in New Jersey and they didn't have access to his criminal background. But once they do figure it out, which it doesn't take them too long, I think it's like six months or something, they eventually learn and he is fired. But the fact that he was even allowed to get that close to a bunch of little kids and the parents are like, oh yeah, he's a great guy. Like he must have been so personable. That seems to be the running theme is that people are trusting him. He's dating these women. He's getting close to these families. He's spending time at their house during sleepovers and stuff. Here's the thing. I think I think the bar is a little bit lower because women are told over and over again that their value decreases as a single mother. Oh, yeah. And that men don't want to participate with children that aren't theirs. And even then, they don't really want to participate. Right. And so you see this man stepping up to be a father figure to a whole bunch of little kids or a man who's willing to date a single mother. And people just automatically assume, give him the benefit of the doubt that he's this really nice, sweet guy that that he must not care about the stigma. And that probably gave him a lot of freedom to do all of this shit. We talked about this in... Rachel Mellenskemp's episode, but the statistic has stuck in my brain because I didn't know this beforehand. Children are 10 times more likely to be abused whenever they're in the foster care system and don't have access to either biological parent, but they're actually 20 times more likely to be abused if they live with a biological parent and that biological parent's live-in boyfriend or it's like a stepfather or stepmother Mm -hmm. so they're actually less safe which is saying something because people are constantly talking about how awful the foster care system is but it's actually 
more risky just having a live-in partner your child is at increased risk yep that boggles my mind insane there's got to be a type of perpetrator who targets single parents with children specifically because they want access to these children Mm -hmm. there was a whole movie about it with natalie portman did you ever see where the heart is no the one where she's living in the walmart nope never seen it okay i've seen uh clips of it though it's an amazing movie it's like one of my favorite movies but it has that exact same story in it where natalie portman's she's the main character but one of her best friends she has three or four children or something and she just keeps endlessly getting into these relationships with shitty men and finally she gets this one that she's like this is the one you know, he's so nice to my kids. He's a great father figure. But really, he's just a predator and he's using her because he's a child molester. Mm-hmm. After seeing that movie, I was like, does that actually happen? And then now, like, researching true crime, I'm like, I think this is actually more common than I realized. Super common. Very unfortunately. But anyway, so I could do, like, a whole another episode about even more cases that are potentially linked to him. So... Glenn Barker has also been suspected in several other unsolved cases of murdered and missing women and girls. And I'm just going to name a couple of them. So specifically, 20-year-old Kelly Berg Dove, who disappeared from her job at a gas station in Harrisonburg, Virginia, which is about 60 miles from Charlottesville. That happened only three weeks before Katie Worski. And then 18-year-old Paula Dean Chandler who disappeared the day after Kelly Dover, Dover, I don't know how to pronounce her name, Kelly Dover, only one day after Kelly disappeared from the gas station, Paula Dean Chandler disappeared and her body was found by a fisherman near the dam at Ravana Reservoir, which is only eight miles from Charlottesville. So these are all kind of in his radius. Currently, the murders of Cynthia and Heather Johnson remain unsolved. But police feel very confident that the perpetrator was someone close to them. They are looking for more witnesses to come forward with information. Specifically, they are trying to track down a pizza delivery person whom they know delivered a pizza to Cynthia's residence hours before the murders. So if you or someone you know was a pizza delivery driver delivering pizzas around Richmond, Virginia in August 1996, you might have information the police need. You can contact Sergeant George Wade with the Richmond Police if you have any tips. His phone number is 804-646-6741. Kaylee, do you have any other thoughts before I sign us off? I'm sure you do. Where the f*** is this Glenn bastard right now? Oh, he's dead. Oh. I love how I forgot to put that in here. I was hoping he was still alive because I would like to change that myself. No, he's already dead. So, like, if there was anyone who was afraid of him and the only reason they didn't come forward is because they were afraid of him, he's long gone. So if you knew Glenn Barker, you should definitely go to the police and tell them what you know. Because he can't get you at this point. Rotting in hell where he belongs. Well, that was upsetting. Extremely upsetting. I told you. Going you always it. tell me. And I always am like, no, I, I'll i be fine. <laughs> and at the very end, I'm always like, I hated this. I hate you. I hate me. I hate the world. I hate everything. I need a smoothie. <sighs> I need a smoothie. I just, how is it unsolved? That's what, uh, 
Because I think probably everyone listening is thinking, oh, yeah, it's Glenn. Obviously. You might be able to cast suspicion on Gary because he was also driving around her house late at night. Yeah. And who knows if she maybe was involved in other men that flew under the radar. But Glenn obviously has the most upsetting criminal history that matches the MO to a T of harming and targeting young women and girls and then making them disappear or trying to make them disappear. Yeah, the only thing that's different about this case uh, with the rest of the things that Glenn supposedly perpetrated, right? The rest of the people he supposedly kidnapped and killed is that he set Cynthia and Heather's house on fire. Yeah. And he stabbed them to death, which sounds different than the other cases that he might be connected to. Except the 18-year-old girl that he abducted at knife point and tied to a bed. Yeah, except for like that. The knife, the knife is similar. But yeah, there wasn't fire involved in any of the other cases that we know of, unless he did something to Katie Worski. Yeah. And maybe it was because it would be hard to get rid of two bodies. He had never done that before. Yeah. But here's the thing, though. It worked. Like him using yeah. fire, they weren't able to recover any evidence against him. The mm -hmm. most they have is that Gary and one of the neighbors saw a truck that looked like his. But they took his truck into a lab and they analyzed it and they didn't find anything usable. Yeah. It makes sense that they wouldn't find anything usable. Like, Well, but if he had been covered in blood and then got into his truck, there should be something in there, right? Unless he burned his stuff, changed out of his clothes and burned his clothes. You think he drove home naked or he brought a change of clothes? Or maybe he was naked when he killed them. <laughs> and he just hopped in the shower i feel like there's so many cases where you think and think and think and overthink it and then you're like they had to have been naked that's only that's, <laughs> that's <only> it because <laughs> remember when we were doing uh jane newman's case we were trying to figure out how her husband could have killed her and yeah. how he was able to return to work without any blood on him and yeah we're like maybe he was naked <laughs> i want to know how common it is for perpetrators to strip Butt naked, commit murder, shower, and then put clothes on. But also, maybe he wasn't butt naked. He could have just had, like, some boxer shorts on. Yeah. It's easy to get rid of a pair of underwear. Yeah. I wouldn't know. <laughs> Kaylee. I've never had to kill anybody in my underwear, nor would I ever. Way too vulnerable swinging around up top. If you to kill someone, you might as well look sexy doing it. Well, I, I need a sports bra to strap these fuckers down. Or else I'm not killing anybody. I'll just poke my own eye out. I'll slap myself in the face. Sports bras are not sexy. No. Anyone who says otherwise, I don't know what they're smoking. You're not wearing the right sports bra. You're not strapped in. <laughs> okay, I'm going to sign us off. Okay, we're done. I'm cutting you off, Kaylee. <laughs> okay. Thanks for tuning in to Crime Soup Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. You can follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram for even more true crime content. We also have a website, crimesouppodcast.com, where you can listen to all of our past episodes and even buy your very own Crime Soup merch. As always, we'll see you next Tuesday. Stay safe and bon appetit! Bye.